You're listening to The Seasoned Migrant, a show about culture, migration, and ideas, and how these have shaped our understanding of the world. I'm Yusuf Amanullah. And I'm Leonard Bout. And on this episode, we're talking about K-pop, cultural power and post-colonialism in popular music. So turning back to our episode on telenovelas and how the melodrama of Latin America was actually exported to not just the South American countries, but actually made its way all the way to Yugoslavia and to Russia. And it was this really exciting example of culture flowing between the global South. And we came upon this topic of K-pop and it was really exciting because in similar ways to telenovelas, K-pop wasn't just a national industry that was enjoyed by people of that country, say like telenovelas and their target audiences in in South America, but rather it was something that spread across firstly East Asia and then beyond that. And now we see this musical genre that, at least for me, when I first remember the likes of Gangnam Style and so on, was something that was really quirky and that existed, but I didn't know much about. But increasingly, it's just becoming part of what mainstream popular music is. And it's no longer exotic or or quirky it's part of the kind of musical taste that people say in the west would would include as part of just what young people listen to and i think what's really interesting about k-pop is that while the south korean government had this intention of making k-pop into a popular cultural export and that's something that we're going to be talking about on this episode the outcome and the results were far greater than were ever foreseen and then when you add on top of that the cultural influences in the music and the fact that K-pop defies the traditional cultural flows that we see in the world. All of this coming together makes this really interesting story. So now we turn to the modern history of K-pop. And the fact of the matter is that K-pop has actually been the second generation of successful cultural exports out of South Korea. And it was actually Korean television that set the stage for the global consumption of Korean culture. And this started with Korean TV dramas that became massively popular first across East Asian countries and then across the world. So, for example, if we take China, the first Korean TV drama to run over there was in 1997. And it became so popular amongst its audiences that the television channel actually rebroadcast it in primetime the following year. And it was this popularity that even concerned the government so much that they started introducing these quotas so that they could contain the influence of Korean culture 
And they were even having these discussions about why China had not been able to produce soap operas of the same quality as these Korean ones. And soon after, it wasn't just Chinese television audiences that were really taken by these kind of shows. There was a long list of Asian places like Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Hong Kong, and Malaysia that became huge markets for the shows. So much so that, for example, in 2001, a pair of Korean drama stars were invited by the Vietnamese president to join him in a state dinner. And all of this became the so-called Korean wave 1.0. And it happened in the early 2000s. And it was really where Korean culture was really pouring out of the country and onto TV screens all across Asia. And as we were alluding to earlier on, this export of Korean movies and TV dramas was really an intentional move that was supported by large corporations and the government of South Korea. And this was all part of a big push by the country to develop economically, which started in the 1960s with the exports of manufactured goods like cars and electronics. And in the early 1990s, it became really clear that entertainment could be this really new and exciting place to pursue the strategy for economic growth. And it started all in 1993 with the release of a Korean film called Sabyeonje, which was really the first blockbuster in South Korea. It sold over a million tickets. And that drew so much attention to the potential value of movie production. And then by coincidence, the American film Jurassic Park grossed almost $1 billion in its sales worldwide. And the fact that a film could gross that much money pushed the South Korean government to consider what entertainment industries could do for the country. And something like a billion dollars in revenue was really creating as much income as hundreds of thousands of Hyundai cars. And so with this new opportunity in mind, by the mid-90s, new laws had been passed and subsidies had been implemented to encourage big companies like Samsung to get involved in movie production. And with these new policies, the government's budget for cultural initiatives had increased by 500 times. And through the early 2000s, these shows found popularity beyond Asia. So for example, the show Jewel in the Palace was broadcast to over 120 countries. And in many countries around the world, it became an important way for Korean diasporas to stay connected with South Korea. And at the same time that Korean culture was finding fans, not just in Asia, but across the world, the focus was shifting away from Korean TV dramas into K-pop. And this became Korean Wave 2.0, starting from around 2013 onwards. And this new wave of K-pop really took advantage of the internet and the explosion of social media to become this new global phenomenon. And it's from here that we see the results that no one was really expecting. So for example, Sai's Gangnam Style video became the first to achieve a billion views on YouTube, and that too in just six months. And at the same time, Korean singer Rain was no longer just popular in South Korea or East Asia, but was able to sell out performances at Madison Square Garden, New York's iconic arena. And even in Chile, the K-pop group Super Junior had its own cover group called Blue Boy, who themselves have their own fan club.
And what makes Korean culture and its success extremely exciting is that it becomes this case study where we can really see the complexities of how culture flows. And for a long time, it's been the case that media and culture across the world was kind of dominated by by Western media powerhouses, places like Hollywood or other major labels. And if there was any kind of international flow of culture, it was mostly from these places to the rest of the world. But now actually that picture of the world is really inaccurate. And we have flows of culture across regions, obviously, as we have with K-pop. And it goes without saying that regions outside of the West are having a global impact in the kind of culture that people consume across the world. And the popularity and influence of K-pop and the wider Korean waves have been massive precisely because they originated outside the West. And more than that, from a country with a very unique history of colonialism. And so before we dive into the different instances of colonialism in Korea and how that shaped Korean popular music and what later became K-pop, we have to look at what music was like on the peninsula before all of that. And what was really exciting about Korean music up to the late 1800s was that traditional Korean music was all about the function that it was serving. So musical styles revolved around whether they were going to be performed for ancestral worship or for banquets or, for example, for military processions. And this form of musical composition was very different to European classical music, which was often composed independent of any function. And so this European classical music started entering into Korea through Christian missionaries, and in particular through the hymns that Christian converts used to sing. And then in 1910, we have the second example of outside influences beginning to shape Korean music, but this time it was much more forceful. And so in 1910, the Japanese annexed Korea, and they made it a very strong point for them to rid the territory of all things Korean and replacing them with Japanese culture instead. They replaced things as far as the Korean language and even the way that names were written down. And as part of this effort, of course, music was replaced too. And well, in 1908, they went so far as banning certain musical styles, closing the schools that taught them, and even burning the musical scores. But what's really interesting is that Japan wasn't imposing an authentic Japanese culture. It was introducing a more contemporary form of its culture, which was heavily influenced by the West. For example, if you take the national anthem of Japan, it was composed by Franz Eckert, who was Prussian and not Japanese. And so these changes that were happening in Korea took many different forms. For example, the traditional kugak music with the Western influence that was coming through from Japan morphed into musical theater and later into opera. But this transformation of culture was very top-down in its process. And so the majority of Korea found the introduction of European music extremely unsettling. And so all these changes were making a big dent on the popular music of Korea. And the policies surrounding all of that continued to get more severe as Japan entered the Second World War. By the start of the war in 1939, Korean as a language had been banned as a medium of instruction from schools. And in terms of music, the Japanese continued to shape it by trying to introduce national songs that bolstered the authority of the Japanese and were essentially propaganda. And 
by the end of the war in 1945, Japan's loss and the subsequent loss of Korea as a colony for them meant that Koreans were liberated from this colonial influence. But then on started a kind of third phase of foreign influence on the culture of the country. And this influence came from America's involvement towards the end of the Second World War and the subsequent Korean War, which ended in 1953. And after 1953, a lot of American soldiers stayed back and they held a lot of prestige in the country. At the same time, because of the income levels in Korea, Americans were really the only ones who could afford to pay for musical performances. Plus, when you consider the fact that there was this resentment towards the Japanese, there was an exodus of Japanese from the country. And as a result, it was the Americans that really decided what was played in venues and on radio stations. And in fact, one scholar estimated that in 1950, the revenues from these performances for American soldiers probably exceeded the total export earnings for the entirety of South Korea. And so it was all of this which gave South Korea its post-war momentum for popular music in the country, and thus became the beginnings of the modern music industry. And so throughout the entirety of the first half of the 20th century, Korean popular music was very intertwined with foreign influences, and it's that which led to the evolution of contemporary popular music in the country, and later on, K-pop. So we're here to talk with Dr. Hyeri Jung from Eastern University, who specializes in fan reception and global media studies. And she's here to share with us her reflections on the spread of K-pop. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode, Harry. Could you share with us how K-pop has become this important and successful cultural export of South Korea? So very long story into a very short. <laughs> um, so back in the 1990s, uh, we had a president whose name was Kim Dae-jung. So Kim Dae-jung, I would say, was the very first president in South Korea who realized the importance of popular cultural exports, uh, where in the past, hitherto, has been very often um, ignored because South Korea, as you may know, has gone through a very dynamic process when it comes to uh, the uh, modernization process. Um, everything happened so quickly after the end of Korean War. There was industrialization, and democratization and everything happened so fast within our say within like 20 years so i would say three there are three actors that come into play for um the current success of what is known as korean wave meaning the popularity of south korean culture outside of the korean territory um and they are the state entertainment industry and of course, the fans. I think when it comes to the realm of Korean wave and of course, K-pop, we cannot engage in a meaningful discussion without talking about its fans. Um, when I say fans, I'm talking about international fans, those who are not Korean and who are not living in the Korean territory. 
So another aspect that really affected um, the popularity of K-pop outside of the Korean territory is Korea's desperate yearning for global and international recognition. Because as many people know, Korea was one of the poorest countries, South Korea, whenever I say Korea, I mean South Korea. South Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world uh, up until 1950s or 1960s. But then now it's one of the uh, richest and strongest countries in the world. And that's because a lot of South Koreans are desperate for global and international recognition. And I, I can say this with confidence that the popularity of Korean wave was something that the, the state was not expecting. I do not think that the popularity of or the current craze for K-pop was not intentional. Um, however, K-pop especially became a global phenomenon because I think thanks to the technological development and social media. Social media is one of the aspects that really fueled um, the global craze of K-pop. And so, Harry, what is your opinion on how nationalism and K-pop have interacted with one another? I, I personally, this is my personal opinion, I personally do not think that Korea's nationalism played a big part in um, the current popularity of K-pop phenomenon. I think it was the international fans who first realized and recognized the value of K-pop. And um, one of the aspects or characteristics of K-pop that really captivated international, meaning non-Korean fans, was a gender representation. As we all know, Western pop culture has dominated um, the global cultural um, landscape for many decades. And very often, their representation of masculinity has been quite patriarchal. Um, however, if one has ever taken a look at uh, the male representation of K-pop, it's not very conventional. They are not hesitant to wear makeup. They are not hesitant to act, quote-unquote, in a feminine behavior. And I think those characteristics and traits are what captivating international uh, fans because that's something that they have not seen before. And going back to the relationship between nationalism and K-pop, I think the notion of nationalism kicked in after international fans started to uh, like K-pop and follow K-pop mainly on social media. And on this point of Koreans around the world, how has K-pop been received by the Korean diaspora in the United States? When it comes to the Korean diaspora living in the United States and probably Canada, um, I think they welcomed the popularity of K-pop because up until then, again, if you are an East Asian, if you have ever lived in the Western Hemisphere, uh, one of the very frequent questions that you may encounter is, oh, are you like Chinese <laughs> or something like that? Because uh, to them, they're not very familiar with Korea except the Korean War and probably North Korea. So to them, Korea is nothing but Korean War and North Korea. And many of them are not 
cognizant of how developed South Korea is uh, because all the news that they get in the U.S. is about North Korea and very rarely about South Korea. So Korean diaspora, they really welcomed uh, the popularity of K-pop. And I think that not only Korean diaspora, but also Asian diaspora living in the Western Hemisphere welcomed the popularity of K-pop for several reasons, for ethnic proximity or racial proximity or something like that. So historically, we've had a media landscape that has been dominated by the West and by America especially. How do you see K-pop fitting within this landscape? Would you assess it as a post-colonial challenge to the system or an industry that is nested within it? I found this question to be extremely um, interesting. Um, I think my answer is both. I think both K-pop is challenging either to dominate Western pop landscape. And at the same time, it is also conforming to one of the dominant ideologies, which is capitalism. Um, K-pop operates within the dominant capitalist economic system. However, K-pop is different from American pop culture, especially when it comes to gender representation and male performers representation there i think it is also important to highlight that there have been um, some backlash against the popularity of korean wave in i would say japan and china in japan um, there has been a movement called anti-korean wave um, and the uh, protesters are almost always middle-aged older Japanese men <laughs> um, because um, if you are not Korean and if you like K-pop um, I'm not trying to generalize but it's almost always liberal open-minded female fans who are I would say against the notion of long-held ideology called patriarchy. I think the male representation in K-pop really challenges uh, the notion of patriarchy, regardless of uh, being intentional or unintentional, because again, K-pop operates within the capitalist patriarchal system. So I find it very interesting that male representation, the reception of gender representation is different depending on where you're from. So yes, there, the patriarchy is still very strong in South Korea. And how, however, when I would say American fans perceive K-pop's male representation, to them, it is against the notion of patriarchy. So no matter intentional or unintentional, what matters is the reception of international fans. And to them, to American fans, to Western fans, the representation of um, gender in K-pop is something that they have not seen before. And to them, it is going against, not all the time, but quite often going against the dominant social system of patriarchy. So here, on this point of the performance of masculinity in K-pop and how that's at odds with the performances of the West, has that also been the case for femininity? Another very interesting question. <sighs> I would say uh, in the realm of K-pop, 
may performance get more leeway or more diversity when it comes to portraying their when it comes to like playing with gender representation when it comes to female k-pop performers i would say they are relatively more conforming to the notion of patriarchy um in female k-pop performers it can be dichotomized into two um, images. It's either cute or sexy. And that, of course, conforms to patriarchy. However, one thing that separates female K-pop performers from Western performers is that in West, in the West, especially in the United States, uh, the notion of cute, the notion of cuteness, the notion of cute culture is very, very different. In South Korea, and I know for sure in Japan, the notion of cute culture is prevalent and it is almost always accompanied with positive images, something love, comfort, um, soothing, something very positive. However, I know in the US, the notion of cute culture is very often associated with someone being vulnerable in a very negative way. For example, in the US, if men cry, um, then um, they are either being emasculated or being feminine, which is again, very negative. But if you see the Korean wave content or K-pop, men cry all the time. <laughs> and it's not something frowned upon. So going back to your question, one of the differences that uh, K-pop female performers have is uh, they possess cuteness and it is, it is received very positively, unlike um, in the US. So on the one hand, we have China on the rise and the breakdown of America's traditional place in the world balance of power. But on the other, we're also seeing a wave of nationalism, including cultural nationalism around the world. What do you think this will mean for exports like K-pop that have relied on globalization for their success? Very interesting question. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of anti-Korean wave, anti-K-pop movements outside of Korea, for example, in China and Japan. However, what I am seeing, what I'm witnessing nowadays is um, the diminishing notion of nation state and the diminishing notion of national boundaries, especially in the social media escape. And also audience is becoming extremely segmented. I think we now no longer say there is a mass audience because audience taste is being segmented. Um, and we are, we are seeing a growing number of media content that is extremely becoming specialized, extremely becoming customized to fit the taste of the, um, ever-increasingly segmented audience taste. So although, yes, the anti-Korean wave movement in China, in Japan is very strong, um, K-pop is still very, very popular, especially among the social media users, because what they consume, the main media content that they receive and consume is relatively less from the mainstream media, meaning TVs and uh, the networks, but increasingly from social media, meaning Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, um, etc. So as long as international fans are getting what they want on social media um, and state is not 
prohibiting it. I think um, no matter nationalism or anti-Korean wave, anti-K-pop movements happen, I think it will still be very popular because um, wanting to protect one's uh, national cultural um, commodity has been going on forever. It's not new. So to summarize, A, audiences are becoming extremely segmented. B, social media content is becoming ever more um, diversified. And the majority of international K-pop fans are gaining um, what they want, not from the mainstream media, but from social media. And social media has been affected to uh, the notion of diminishing nation state and national boundaries. Thank you so much, Dr. Harry, for joining us for this episode. We're really grateful for all your reflections and for sharing with us your research on this topic about how K-pop has been able to spread around the world and this really fascinating dimension of the performance of gender in K-pop and how that's been at odds with the performances of Western entertainment industries. So what is clear is that for both the Korean waves, the first one being Korean TV dramas and movies, and the second one being K-pop, is that the cultural legacy of both is really complex. On the one hand, their popularity and influence is a reflection of this changing order and distribution of power in the world, and as a result, a changing distribution of cultural flows. But at the same time, the development of popular music and entertainment, within Korea at least, was heavily influenced by these old distributions of power. For example, with American soldiers influencing the beginnings of the music industry. And it's really important also to recognize that, you know, there has been this cool and defiant challenge by the Korean waves against this, this flow of culture, say, from the West to the rest of the world. But it's also important to recognize that new dynamics of, of cultural power have emerged within smaller settings. And yes, Korea and Japan, for example, have had a lot of success with their cultural exports. But at the same time, countries like Vietnam have been very vocal about the fact that they have been quite flooded with, say, Korean dramas or other Korean entertainment, which in turn has made it less possible for the country to develop its own national creative industries. And so with these new cultural flows across the region, new power dynamics emerge with culture. And perhaps it's not so much that culture and these flows are creating these dynamics, but rather exposing the latent power dynamics that already existed within these regions. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and making it this far. We've got many more exciting stories coming up in future episodes and on our Instagram page at seasoned.migrant. If you have any thoughts, any comments, or any ideas for future topics, please send us a message. Also, we love feedback, so let us know what you loved and how we could improve. You've been listening to the Seasoned Migrant Podcast. We'll be back next week. Bye.